are so excited today because we have um, a long-anticipated guest, the one and only Shane Claiborne. Hi, Shane. Hey, it's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this too. This is exciting. So we want to... Um, we are fans. We have like, we have your books and I have, I love your common prayer book. I've had that for a while. Um, and we're going to get to your, um, your book beating guns. That's what we want to talk to you most about. It's such a topic, uh, of conversation in general, but especially with political season coming up. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to, um, have you introduce yourself to everybody. What do you do and how did you get into, um, being somebody that was, into uh, talking about gun reform and uh, what sort of the passion point for you there? Yeah, well, I I didn't, I'm not a fully trained blacksmith yet, but we, you know, we've been uh, transforming donated guns into garden tools and beautiful things. So that's part of my pandemic activity is I now Mm. have a uh, little blacksmithing shop in my, in my house. But, you know, I, I grew up down south. I grew up in East Tennessee. So actually, I grew up with guns. I grew up on the other side of a lot of the issues I feel pretty passionately about these Mm -hmm. days, but fell in love with Jesus down south and came up to Philly to go to college. And about it's been over 20 years ago, we, we started our community here on the north side of Philly. So we've got a little little village we've been building for those years called the simple way and uh Mm. so i'm looking across my street folks have been getting food all morning even in the middle of the we do it cautiously these days but we we, uh we say we're trying to be both courageous and cautious at the same time so we're (laughs) sharing food planting gardens and um and uh yeah so i i i kind of came up to Philly to go to college and then fell in love with this neighborhood. In particular, we had a, a group of homeless families that were living in an abandoned cathedral. And so we started out of that and then been here ever since. Wow. That's really cool. And can you talk about the simple way a little bit? I think it will serve such a good backdrop um, f- for what you say, because one of the things you talk about is with gun reform, it reorients us to, towards community and not towards self. So can you talk about the simple way a little bit more? Yeah, totally. So, I, you know, here I was in, in doing my undergrad work in college, and one of my friends came in the cafeteria at our college and said, check this out, you're not going to believe it. And we read uh, the newspaper, and it told the story of these homeless moms and kids, mostly mm-hmm. that were living in this old cathedral that had been abandoned for years. And it, the, the headline was Church Resurrected. Mm-hmm. But then as you kept reading it, it ended with the the really um, uh, like scary reality that the, the actual Catholic Church had given them 48 hours to get out. Oh, they wow. considered that they were trespassing, and so they were given this eviction. Um, and, you know, something just didn't feel right about that. And uh, so we organized a group of students uh, to pray about it. But then, you know, there's kind of those times you throw your hands up at God and you feel God say, go, go you know, get off your knees and get down there. So we did, Mm -hmm. we, uh, uh, joined that struggle and it lasted for months. And, um, 
some of my heroes and uh, some of my best theology, you know, kind of came out of that struggle. And we started reading about the early church in the book of Acts in the, in the mm-hmm. New Testament. And it says that they shared everything they had, they owned. No one, them, none of them, you know, uh, uh, held their possessions for themselves. They shared them so beautifully. And then it says there were no needy persons among them. They worshiped God out of their homes. So it was this sense of kind of churches lived out of living, living rooms and dinner tables, you know, and that's yeah. kind what we started with here um so we bought a house together coming out of college and then we got a lot of abandoned houses so we got our second house for one dollar uh oh, wow. what they call a fixer upper you know so we fix that <laughs> up and then uh so anyway we've been building this little village so we got we you know we fixed up a lot of properties and planted gardens and painted murals and you know that's that's kind of what we've been up to and then you know part of that is we're living in an area where um we suffer the brunt of a lot of these injustices. It's a uh, neighborhood that's really challenged economically. It's beautiful in a lot of ways. I mean, community is how people have survived, uh, really racially diverse. It's a beautiful community to be a part of. But gun violence is one of those things that's, you know, still uh, one of the dark sides of, of, of our life here. Almost every corner of our neighborhood, we can, uh, tell the stories of who died there from, you know, being shot. And even, even the house that I'm, I'm recording this from with y'all is a abandoned house that someone was killed in mm. that we, you know, consecrate and reclaim it for, you know, for, yeah. for, uh, for God and for good things to happen out of. But, uh, yeah. And I, I think, you know, a lot of these issues, they kind of chose me mm. and that's why I've come to really think that proximity makes a world of difference. Oh, you yeah. know, uh, one, one of my friends says that, privilege is being able to choose which issues we care about and which ones we yeah. don't. And, uh, and then when we live closer to people who have struggled, uh, the issues kind of, we can't help but ignore things like gun violence or health care, the mass incarceration or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's so true. I love, I love that idea about the proximity and you talk about in your book that, like you said, that you grew up with guns, um, in Tennessee and hunting and your wife did hunting as well. Um, but that, would you say that it was living in this neighborhood, the proximity that sort of flipped the switch? Did you have a moment like you just described, um, where you like, you just sort of throw your hands up and you're like, okay, it's time to go do something. Um, was, or was it a slow burn that sort of made you sort of get closer to the issue and start contemplating, um, looking at gun, gun reform in a different way? Yeah, if my wife were here, she would very quickly make it clear that she's a much better shot than I am. You know, she grew up dove hunting and things like that. And, uh, um, uh, you know, so so and when we're down south, our, our family still a lot. I mean, most of our family are gun owners and hunters and things mm-hmm. like that. So. Yeah, here's what I, I, well, one of the kids said this really well. He had moved into this neighborhood uh, from California or something, and um, they lived in Omaha. They lived in a bunch of different places, but he moved here and saw the gun shops. And he's like, why are there so many gun shops in Philadelphia when there aren't that many deer to hunt? Mm. You're like, wow, (laughs) out of the mouth of babes, (laughs) you know? So I I really, you know, I think guns and uh, have a different manifestation, you know, now to me than they did growing up. and, and this is where I'm really encouraged is I think that over and over the studies are showing now that uh, an overwhelming number of gun owners 
want to see a better conversation around guns and they want to see some sensible changes. So, I mean, it's like eight, over 80%, depending on what we're talking about, it's up to 90%. You know, uh, I went on a march with these hunters against gun violence. I love their t-shirts. It said a good hunter doesn't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a good so, yeah. So, I, you know, uh, moms demand action. So many of these groups are saying we're not anti second amendment. We're not even anti guns as much as anti gun violence. Right. And we just think we can do a better job, mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, when it comes to things like, uh, guns that shoot a hundred rounds a minute, you know, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, I think, I think there's folks that want to see some easy changes. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the, um, I love what you say. You, you do a lot about talking about the second amendment. First of all, I loved your history of guns. I didn't, I learned so much reading that I had no idea obviously now looking at it, it's like oh of course uh just what a money-making endeavor it all was um but i thought that part of yeah. your book was fascinating um but when we talk about the the second amendment for a second so um i loved what you said in in your book about being clear on the historical and cultural context of which the second amendment was written so what was going on what type of guns we're talking about in um, the Second Amendment. And so if you could touch on that a little bit, but then also I found it fascinating that a lot of times people then, because you tied it heavily with Matthew 5 and Sermon on the Mount, and a lot of times people are always talking about how we view scripture and the same thing. What was the historical context? What was the cultural context? And so I find it fascinating that we are quick to do that with a lot of pieces of work. But as you point out, we don't do that with, uh, the Constitution or the Second Amendment in general, and why do you think that is? Yeah, that's good. We'll unpack some of that. I, you know, I, I uh, uh, first of all began to see, you know, th these guns that when the Second Amendment was written, we were talking about guns that shot one round a minute, you know, and now we've got guns that shoot a hundred rounds a minute yeah. or more, and you, you know, we we kind of put those side by side in the book to show the the contrast to that. But it's interesting, though, because uh, James Madison, you know, who's known as the father of the Constitution, helped draft the Second Amendment and everything. And he said he had an, a powerful line. He said, liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, mm. but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. Mm. And so, so our freedom can become... Um, oppressive to other folks if it goes unregulated and i mean even now you have folks that are mar militias marching on capitol buildings and folks that are saying we don't need to wear masks you know and it's ironic though you know that some of the same folks will say i don't need a mask god will protect right. me somehow they do think they need a gun you <laughs> yes. know and so you know but but i um yeah so i i really think that um part of what we've got to look at is is how far you know how different what we're talking about now is from when that was written even the fact that they wrote well regulated in yeah. it um you know and this was for militias uh, that were meant to be uh, they served other purposes like especially in the age of slavery and stuff but i think that they they were meant to be like the 
state national guard, mm-hmm. you know, cause we didn't have a standing army right. and stuff. And so as that evolved, our, our thinking didn't, you know, somehow didn't evolve. And it's, it's a very new thing that the Supreme court, uh, only, you know, just like f- 15 years ago ruled that that extends to an individual, right. right. You know, but they certainly were very clear, even the most conservative court, Supreme court justices, that it still needs to be regulated. There need to be restrictions. We shouldn't just have any gun, any person, yeah. you know, um, so, you know, I, I think that's important, an important backdrop um, to, to challenge. But here's the thing is, for those of us that follow Jesus, we've got a higher authority even than the Constitution. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, you imagine it, what if every Christian took the Sermon on the Mount as seriously as the Second Amendment, you know, um, that's where I think we've got to allow our fidelity and love for Jesus to be the primary framework. And, and that's where I, you know, it's so hard for me to see this fusion of, of, of guns and God. Mm. Um, uh, Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America and white Christians in particular. So this is, you know, this is a problem. And as we, we think about the gun and the cross, I think they give us two very different versions of power. And one says, I'm willing to kill. The other says, I'm willing to die. And when you compare the messages of like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the NRA, the all right, you know, stay in your aggressive yeah. or hard direction. That, that is, that is, and what touched so. me, your story that you talk about one of the gun shops um, in the neighborhood you live in and that you guys held a Good Friday service outside um, one of the gun shops. And um, to me, I see those two, uh, those two mantles, those two ways to power on display in that story. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so this happened uh, incidentally. Um, it's, uh, the the backdrop of this was we had a 19 year old who was killed um, right in front of my house, and I heard the gunshots go out. I ran outside it was about midnight, and he was still alive. He he fell to the ground. I was holding him, praying with him. The ambulance came, and then we found out the next day he had he had died. Um, and there kind of comes that moment where. Martin Luther King said, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. Um, but after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, we got to do something about why people why keep they, landing there. So here? Yeah. yeah, it was right before Easter. And so we decided let's take our, you know, worship into the streets. And so we, the young man in my neighborhood actually carried the cross to um, just two blocks from here to, uh, uh, the gun shop, and this is not just any gun shop. This is uh, one of the worst of the worst, and and th- I think that's really important. Is that a handful of gun shops, five percent, are responsible for uh, a wide majority yeah. of the crimes using you know the gun cr- crime guns. Um, so anyway, we had this cross put up. We read the narrative of the Jesus's death on Good Friday as execution and the, you know, the violence that's in the scripture and the women weeping at the foot of the cross. And then we invited the moms and dads that had lost their kids to take the stage. And literally, um, but these moms in particular began to cry and to tell the story of losing their children. There was this transcendent kind of connection yeah. between the moms 2000 years ago and our moms and the, 
the violent death of Jesus and the suffering of our streets. And, and I'll never forget afterwards, this woman came up and she said, I, I get it. I get it. And she's very emotional. And she said, I said, what? She said, God knows what it feels like to lose your boy. And it was Papito's mom, mm. that 19 year old's mom. And, and so to me, that, that's why this gun crisis is not just a political crisis. It's also a spiritual crisis. And, um, and I think what we see in Jesus is a God that is near to the suffering. And, um, you know, that, that's, uh, that's part of what I think we, we remember is that Jesus absorbed the violence of the world on the cross and triumphed over it with love and forgiveness. And that's, that's who we're following, you know, and, and it should make us really sensitive to those who are victims of violence today and very suspicious yeah. of the apparatus of, of killing in, in the world since we worship a victim of violence. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And you, you do a great point about talking about how you're like the gun, um, somebody, when somebody is shot, it is not just that person that is a victim of that violence. It is a ripple effect to their entire community, their entire families. And um, you talk about too how it, I feel, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that the studies have shown that grandchildren of Holocaust survivors carry inherited trauma, that trauma mm -hmm. does something. And so that really stuck out to me. Um, you said also in your book, and this ties in, but that um, when you were able to visit the Winchester factory, so in, I lived in San Francisco for a time and they have the Winchester Mystery House. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, so I've been there a few times and went on the haunted tour. So for people that don't know, like <laughs> it's his wife that built it, I believe. And she was haunted. Yeah. She was um, felt like all these ghosts of people that died from the guns that her husband made were going to come back and get her. So she builds this huge mansion with stairs that like lead to nowhere. And it's like twisty yeah. turvy. And I wore like a, I'm such a nerd. So I wore like a G tracker when we did it and we went through the tour and we only did half the house and it was three miles worth of like stairs yeah. and twisting. And so that I did that like seven years ago. Now knowing what I know about trauma, about inherited trauma, about mental illness and these different things, I look at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, like she never once fired a gun. She didn't do any of those things, but it affected her as being in such close proximity, as you said before, in this way that now it's this attraction you can go and see. But what a sad um, representation of what of what you just said, of gun violence isn't just about the person who gets shot, but it's about how it affects all of us in communities and this spiritual sickness that we have. Yeah, I, I did go to that, that uh, Sarah Winchester's mansion Sarah. and, you know, the people that knew her, mm -hmm. uh, they say she was not crazy. Right. Yeah, she was haunted. Yeah. She was haunted. Mm -hmm. And there's a powerful book that I built on some of uh, the, the work of this historian, Pamela Haig, uh, called Gunning of America. And it talks about Sarah's story. And it's because it's you you think of the, the there's back then and even now there's this sort of male uh power that surfaces even now you know some of the assault rifles they say uh, here's your man card yeah. you know the bushmaster you know and so there's this male dominated industry that the women then later began to inherit that and so 
Sarah used all of her inheritance to go into this haunted mansion. And it's some say it was almost like she didn't want to try to redeem this blood money, mm. you know, but the, the other thing that I learned in all of it, and the, the kind of, you see, you see kind of the female conscience against the kind of male violence sort of explicit. And it's, you know, it's not that cut and dry, but you know, moms demand action. So many of the people that have been a force in this have been the moms and the women, you know, uh, and, and so much of the violence does occur from men who white men are like 30% of our population, but we're 61% of the gun owners, you know, in the country. So it's, it, there's manifestations of this that we see. And the, the other thing that it reminds me of is, um, that part of our problem is not gun owners, it's the gun profiteers, mm -hmm. right? And this was true for so many of the people. I had no idea until I wrote the book, but um, th these were not gun lovers. They were money lovers, yeah. and they just found that they could make more money off of guns than sewing machines yeah. or shirts, yeah. you know? And so, uh, you know, they went into that uh, business and um, just to make money, and now we're, we're, we continue to see that, as Henry Ford said, if you want to know how to end violence, then figure out who's profiting yeah. from it. And we can see, you know, in, in some of those companies in the NRA that we're, we, and while they don't represent the bulk of our population, they're even of gun owners, they do own a lot of the politicians with their funding. So that's part of what we got to change, you know? Yeah. Part of that too, the, um, I, I'm curious, the part of this, so this book is at least a year old, right? Is that correct? Or yeah. And it's like, it's hard. I feel like in this time period or this last, I don't know how long there's just been like, you know, it's been, uh, every shooting is like, this is now the worst, uh, um, shooting in American history. And the next one's like, well, now this one is the worst. And I remember with Sandy hook that feeling like, like, how do we get to a lower spot than this? Right. And you, if, for some reason that felt like that was going to be a, a corner turn. Cause it was like, these are children. This feels like it's a a breaking moment for the nation. And so I wanted to like, if you, and you kind of brought this up already, but now we have like the guys on the steps of courthouse, which I see in the news. I'm like, how in the world <laughs> is this even remotely possibly legal huh. that these yeah. guys can take these huge weapons and stand on these state buildings. So we have that going on. Then we also have obviously the Ahmad Arbery stuff and just, uh, this vigilante, um, uh, mindset that these, you know, white men have of running around with their shotguns and their guns. And, um, so this idea of just like the kind of the roots of this stuff. So we had Don Golden on, I don't know, so. three months ago yeah. or I don't know. Yeah. All the, and one days of the things of he blended. talked about, I know it's just so everything's today. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he brought up this idea in Genesis three, like the, um, when sin enter entered the world, this idea that the myth of scarcity entered the world. And then it became like this, I'm afraid that I don't have what I need and I'm afraid I will not have what I need. And because of that, I have every right to defend myself. And that brings in this myth of redemptive violence. I think he worded it that way. Like since uh, it, I have the right to defend myself or to do something or to take from you if I think that I'm defending or whatever, right? It, my, my violence is justified through this idea of fear. And I wrote down some of these statistics that um, March of this year, there were 3.7 million, uh, background checks during the coronavirus for mm. guns. And in one day there was 210,308 checks in a single day, March 20th, the highest in, a, in our history. 
Um, and then the second highest day of, of these background checks was December 17th, 2012. That was the day after Sandy Hook mm. or right after Sandy Hook. Mm. So yeah. I know you talk a little bit about this stuff, this idea of like of, of fear. And I, th- I was wondering if maybe you could go into some of that too, that like these, these roots that, cause I know it also ties into the NRA stuff and how the profiteering works. And, um, sorry, that was a very long, I like to do really long winded <laughs> questions. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's there's some important things to uh, to dive into with all that. And first of all, is that I think it is so important that these things are really interconnected. Mm-hmm. You know, intersectional. Uh, they're different manifestations of fear and violence that really go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, the inaugural sin outside the garden was Cain and Abel was a brother killing a brother. You know, that's that's some of the first fruits of our our fallenness and and we've been doing it ever since you know um and and as we look at the the historic sins of america i mean there's there's plenty of things i think we can celebrate about our country but um the the fact that this country could it would be unimaginable without guns without what we did to native folks and the way that guns were used to subjugate uh, uh enslaved africans you know um so th- this is this is one of those me- things that continues to have new iterations, you know, um, and the and the loss of of uh, black lives. The guns are the number one cause of death of African American mm. youth. Number one, it's number two for white kids, but it's number one for African Americans. And we we um, That's wild. I mean, you know, after Sandy Hook, it woke a lot of people up. Partly because it wasn't. Um, uh, just African-American kids. It was kids in Connecticut, you know, and, and people said never again, but we've let it happen again and again and again. Um, in my lifetime, we've had more people killed domestically by guns than in all of the wars in American history. Just absolutely stunning, right? We've got more guns than people, five times more gun shops almost than McDonald's restaurants. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's a part of, Mm. We are, we're producing one gun every three seconds. Mm. So that, that, you know, I, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, who said, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. Like it, it's a call for us not to conform mm. to a world that's so um, uh, driven w- uh, by violence. And even this idea that violence will solve our violence. Right. Mm. But I, I often say like, it's, it's like an alcoholic saying, man, I got a drinking problem. I need some whiskey to take care of that. You know, like we, <laughs> Uh, we just keep like living by the sword, dying by the yeah. sword, living by the gun, dying by the gun. And so when will we really say enough? And that, that that's where, like I said, though, I'm, I'm really excited because um, the, the latest statistic is that, um, you know, 80 to 90 percent of gun owners want to see changes depending on what law that we're talking about. They, they want to see some real sensible changes. And when the NRA, um, the National Rifle Association says like, we represent 5 million people. What we've got to remember is that means 95% of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. Mm. Um, and, and this is, and in fact, like the, a recent study showed that like 62% of gun owners find themselves at odds with the NRA, with the kind of gun extremism, the uncompromising rhetoric and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, police violence, where there's more guns, there's more police violence. Police are nervous. It's the number one killer, of course, of uh, police in the line of duty. The number one killer of military service members is not combat. It's actually suicide by their own mm-hmm. guns. 
Um, so suicide's a big piece of this yeah. too. And where there are more guns, there are more suicides just because they're so effective. Um, almost uh, everyone who commits suicide by other methods lives uh, the, mm. their first lives through their first suicide attempt and they don't go on to take their own life, but you don't get a second chance with a gun, mm. you know, and that that's why the guns and the suicide, the racism is all very interconnected. And, um, and I think underneath it all, there's a whole spiritual side of it too. So when people tell, say to me, well, it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. Um, I agree with them on part of that. I say, but why can't it be both? Yeah. You know, we could get rid of all guns and people will still kill each other. People, we, you know, in Boston, someone turned a pressure cooker into a bomb. We, we will find ways to kill each other. But there are some things that are just designed to kill uh, as many people as possible, right. as quickly as possible. And we want to yeah, like, make that distinction, too, with because um, that's always a big argument is like, well, how many people die in car accidents every year? Mm-hmm. Are we going to ban cars? And it's like cars weren't built. Cars were built for transportation. They weren't yeah. built to murder people or to kill. That was not the intent of the design. Yet, I think you were saying, you know, that you have to get a driver's license. You have to pass a test. And we put in seat belts and we have speed limits. And it's like all this list. If you, miss, if you misuse a car, you lose your yeah. license, right? Exactly. Like there's, right, exactly. there's responsibility that comes yeah. with it. And, you know, uh, so yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's worth thinking about like that. Just how can, how can we do a better job at protecting life? Cause as car technology, automobile technology has evolved and other technology, like now you can't text and drive cause it's dangerous, you know? Right. So like, the gun industry is one of the least evolved uh, when it comes to how we, you know, think about the the laws and restrictions that might protect life. It just has almost not evolved at all. That's so, wild. but the spiritual side of it is important because yeah. we can we can have great laws and no law can change a racist heart or heal mm-hmm. a violent heart, and only God can do that. So it, it, it can be both a heart problem. And and a policy problem and God changes and heals hearts and people change laws. And mm-hmm. I think we need both. We, it's interesting how you said the thing about, sorry, just one last little thing and then I'll be quiet You're for great. a second. The, uh, um, about how, how we can best protect human life. I think that's how you just said it. Uh, I've been thinking about this so much lately because of with the, the, so the argument about wearing masks and whether or not we're curbing, um, virus or not and people are just like but we only have eighty thousand deaths like that's it that's all we have and i'm like if, if we're a people that believe in the idea of the imago day and, and kind of like trying the sanctity of life and trying to keep one person alive the way we rationalize death numbers on like to such a grand scale yeah. is it's just been really tripping me up lately and i know that that's standing with gun violence where it's like it's only this amount if you want to look at a percentage of how many it's like no like we're talking about like you said the the one mother and the one son and and even with the thing in genesis with uh uh cain and abel i was just reading about that the other day too on this topic with the ahmad arbery stuff and it was about how god's response to that when he when he speaks to cain is like i heard your brother's blood calling out from the dirt right. it was like this idea of injustice and the blood that was spilled is literally that's what god reacts to. that's what he heard calling out to him from the dirt was this yeah, there's not a question there. I just say. <laughs> so, yeah. the way I, was we just, I was just. I was. 
<laughs> with a rabbi who was actually telling, he was going through the Hebrew, it was beautiful. And he said, it's actually plural. It, it, it's, it's meant to represent the blood, the bloods of the land. Mm. And so it is your brother's blood. Uh, yeah. And yeah. this is Mike Ferguson, Mike, uh, Mike, Mike in Ferguson, you know, um, um, it, this is about uh, Trayvon Martin. It, it mm. is about uh, Ahmaud Arbery. You know, this is uh, all that blood is crying out and, and the indigenous blood is crying out, you know, and so that's, uh, that's part of, I think, what when we go, we, we should never become comfortable with other people's yeah. deaths. And that's yeah. what Reverend Barber has been saying with the pandemic is there's too yeah. many politicians and people in power that are very comfortable, way too comfortable with other people's deaths. And we've become way too comfortable with over a hundred lives a day being lost to guns, every single one of them uh, made in the image of yeah. God. And, and that's why I think, you know, this has to also become personal and not just yeah. about statistics, but, you know, this is uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson and so many others, like they really have made it personal and that's what it needs to be. You know, like, that's why the, the Black Lives Matter and the, the say, say their names, Ahmaud Arbery, yeah. you know, like yes. it, it needs to become personal. I appreciated yeah. that of all the things in your book where you listed out the names and ages of the victims. Um, and to be honest, my first thought was like, I'm just going to skim it. And then I was like, no, that's the problem <laughs> is that we skim it. So we need to say them out loud. Um, when you talk about the spiritual problem and you talked about this word faith in your book. So um, full disclosure, I'm part of Moms Demand Action. And I also don't own a gun because I'm too afraid to have a gun in the house with children. Um, but I also, the narrative that is spoken to me is we have a gun problem we need to solve not from the mom's demand just in in general we have a gun problem we need to solve the gun problem but until we do you are in danger as a woman if your husband's away at work and someone comes in with a gun you, you the only thing you can do is have a gun or um you can't go in a parking lot by yourself at night. And I live in Texas, so it's open carry. So you can't do that. You know, you have to do that. And you talk about this word faith in there. Um, what do you say to that sort of rhetoric? This idea that like I'm inherently in danger because everybody else has guns, if that makes sense. But where does my where that spiritual side? I think it's on both sides of the coin. So it's a spiritual side that people are totally. dying. But what's the spiritual side on the other side of where my faith That's lies? That's a great question. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think you know, I, the, the 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 I think the statistics and data like they they can be compelling to some people, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that they are important. Like the fact that a gun is more likely to take someone's life in your household than actually to be used to protect you. Like there's just nothing. Every single piece of data actually shows that you know. Um, that you're more likely to be killed by someone who already has a key to your house and by a random stranger, you know, mace and other things are much more effective when it comes to really responding to an intruder, all that stuff. But I think it, at the end of the day, a lot of it and why we do irrational things, you know, that, that like is because of that yeah. fear. And, and the scripture is so clear that perfect love casteth out fear, that fear and love are like, opposite forces are like opposing magnets. You just can't hold them together. And there comes a point where we have to choose, I think, between love and mm -hmm. fear. And so much, so many of the policies of our country right now are being driven more by fear 
than by love. And we end up doing really, really terrible things. We end up doing really scary things, I think, when we are driven more by fear than by love. And, and so I think that's part of what we can do, you know, in, in the midst of this is declare that, you know, we're going to stand on the side of yeah. love over fear and faith over despair. And, um, uh, but 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 it does even even Peter, you know, who I tell the story of in, in my book, uh, when the soldiers come to get Jesus, yeah. I mean, he picks up his weapon. It's, it's just impulsive. Mm -hmm. And he's heard the Sermon on the Mount live yeah. after, you know, and still did yeah. this. And, and Jesus scolds him yeah. and he, he heals the man that that Peter wounded. And, you know, the early Christians said when when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one mm. of us. I mean, if ever there was a case yeah. mm -hmm. for using violence to protect the innocent, I mean, Peter had the best case there ever yeah. was. And, and yet Jesus keeps showing us, no, that violence is the problem, not the solution. Yeah. That's that's, you know, yeah, you can't use it to you can't drive out violence with violence yeah. any more than you drive out hatred with hatred. Well, and it's so uh, fascinating. One of the things I have learned from Moms Demand Action and also from um, some of the work I do in the Bible is with the divine feminine and these sort of feminine aspects. So when you said you're like so much of uh, the love or so much of the change we see is done by the mothers, right? And we see some sometimes these images that are very mothering, um, but oftentimes um, the mother's way is sort of this um, journeying this redemptive this love that you're talking about so talk to us about what you do with raw tools because I see it as such a juxtaposition of um, like you said this man card this violence um, sort of way to do things and then repurposing something that has been used for bad into good that brings healing and restoration I love the project that you did so can you talk to us a little bit about that Thanks. Yeah. And I, and I, I, uh, am so grateful for mom's demand action. I'm so grateful for, um, the, the prophetic women that have really been a part of the conscience of our country, even in the earliest days of gun marketing, the gun capitalists, they said we could get a gun in the hand of every little boy if it weren't for their moms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that resistance is there. And, and, you know, it's not totally painted in, in right. gender. I mean, there's compassionate men, there's militant women, right. but it, it's, it's stark how, how that, how that manifests itself. And so what we started doing was we were actually really inspired by the prophetic vision of uh, Micah and Isaiah. Both of the prophets talk about beating swords into right. plows and spears into pruning hooks, right? And it ends, the prophetic vision ends by saying, nation will not rise up against nation. People will learn violence no more beautiful kind of vision for a world of peace. But it's interesting that it begins with the people, mm. not with the politicians, not the top down, but it's the bottom of the people of God that say, we are so fed up with killing. We're going to actually melt down mm. our weapons and turn them into garden tools. And, um, that that it, it captivated us so much that we we invited people to start donating guns. And the first one we got was an AK-47. Mm a legally owned AK-47 that was given to us. And this guy was just like, I have no idea why I have this mm -hmm. and I want rid of it. So we turned it into a shovel and a rake. And then we've been doing it for 10 years since. And now, you know, have raw tools, which is war flip backwards, mm -hmm. uh, raw right. tools that you can find all the stuff we make out of it. You know, I, you, you, your listeners won't appreciate the, the images here, but you know, we make these, wow. um, 
tools for the garden and signs that say love. And we make these uh, necklaces that are heart necklaces that are out of a crushed barrel of a gun. Mm. So we're, yeah, we're trying to repurpose them. But, you know, it started symbolically and we just did a 40 city tour around the country. And what we realized is that it's much more than just symbolic. It's it's actually, I I, I don't use this word lightly, but it's sacramental. Mm. It's a holy mystery. And we've seen folks, you know, as we give space for the grief and the pain, we invite those who have been directly impacted by gun violence to take the hammer if they want to. And, you know, one person after another, as they're beating on that, they start to tell their story sometimes. And, um, you know, Sharon Risher, who's a part of Mom's Demand, she talked about her mom that was killed in Mother Emanuel AME Church as they were worshiping God. And, you know, a, a man came in and killed uh, nine of them, and she named all mm-hmm. nine of their names. And she said something in my soul was being healed. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw another young man in California that um, he counted 18 times as he beat on the gun uh, gun barrel as we're transforming it. And then he just kind of went off and he was obviously really shaken up. And we talked to him a little afterwards and he said, I took the life of an 18 year old. Mm. So that was for him, you know, and for me. So we're, we're doing that all over the country. And, um, I've got a blacksmithing shop here, but we've also got them all over and we're creating ways that people who want to disarm can, because it's not the easiest thing just to get rid of a gun. So we're trying to make that Mm. easier. And then actually, Sometimes I think probably people disarm and then they end up being sold again. So this way, it sort of, it really does end it. It flips the script. It's a pivot. Yeah, we bring we bring a chop saw and we have what I call chop saw churches that, you know, maybe on the first Saturday or something, they take gun donations. But every gun before the owner leaves, it's chopped and, 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 and made inoperable. And then we take that metal and repurpose it. And you, a lot of times we, we say, if you give us a gun, we'll give you some garden tools. That's so, yeah. cool. I love that is it. awesome. So uh, your book is Beating Guns, but how else can people get involved if they want to know more about this repurposing? What are your, I guess, what are your favorite resources? And then also how that can they get directly involved with raw tools? Totally. Yeah. Well, um, we, um, invite everybody that wants to have a conversation that, you know, people that are gun owners, folks that are just thinking about this for the first time to sort of lean in with an open mind. And, um, there's uh, a film that also accompanied the book that's also called beating guns and it's on uh amazon and vimeo and everything else uh, and it's a good conversation piece and then we've got other t- things on our website that are like for small groups and stuff so folks can go to rawtools.org and uh and you, you know i'm on uh, social media too just my name shane claiborne and folks can uh track what we're up to there uh too so thanks for having the conversation yeah. and and can people come yeah, and visit your community when we're no longer quarantined? Yeah, totally, totally. And 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 I think one of the things for me too is that this this is I'm not a single issue person. Yeah. I wrote a book on the death penalty mm-hmm. too, but it's my passion for life that mm-hmm. that that really um you know, is, is the fire in my bones that fuels this uh, desire to see fewer lives lost to guns. And, you know, I grew up saying that I was pro-life, but I really only thought about that in terms of abortion. And yeah. I, I really want to be pro-life uh, from womb to yeah. tomb, you know, consistently. And to say, what does that look like when it comes to gun violence or the death penalty or black lives or immigration or the environment? You know, these are all uh, 
pro-life issues Absolutely. for me. Absolutely. Gosh, thank yeah. you so much for your work in this space and for redefining mm-hmm. so much of the inherited terms that we've all had. Really appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you all for having a, a good conversation and for uh, encouraging others to do the same. And thanks for your your work with Moms mm-hmm. Demand. Um, just, you know, I just became a part of uh, every town now has a whole, you know, faith movement as a part of it. So I'm one of oh. the many folks that are a part of that. So I should look yeah, into great. that. I didn't realize that. Just announced it yesterday. So oh, yeah, well, it's there awesome. you go. I should <laughs> yeah. look into it. <laughs> Thank you for telling me. That's cool. Yeah. You know, what? it's funny. Talk about fear is it took me a long time to, uh, and I've still only like dipped my toes in it. Um, but I talk about being afraid. I was terrified if I show up to one of these meetings. I'm going to get like someone's going to be there to like hurt the people at the meetings. Like that's yeah. how the how deep the fear runs rampant. But I mm-hmm. just was like, like you said, it was like my son being like, oh, we had a shooter drill today. I'm like, OK, at some point it's you have to say it's more important to me that my child's not inheriting this trauma. And I show up at these meetings or go to these things. And now they're online because of the virus um, than it is to be terrified. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I, I know we're almost out of time, but I think we got to really think deeper about how we fear, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and there was a study that we talk about in the book that shows all of these things that are more likely to kill you mm-hmm. uh, than um, an immigrant or a Muslim terrorist, you know, and yes. there are things like swing sets and uh, vending right. machines falling on you, you know, um, a cow more likely to kill you. So, yeah. You know, and you look at the manifestation of violence and uh, it's more likely that we will be killed by a white supremacist than by yeah. a Muslim terrorist. And so I think we yeah. just got to really kind of check those fears and, okay. and um, you know, walk in the faith of Jesus. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus shows us even if they kill us, you know, that doesn't get the last word. So we're going to be yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for being such a great example of that, Shane, and your yeah, community. Thank you, Shane. Yep, yeah, thanks for your y'all. time today. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. Take care. Yeah. We'd love that. Okay. Bye.